edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupold. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So, last episode, we began looking at the ancient Near Eastern goddess known as Asherah. And as some of you may know, this is part of a larger project to look at the three main uh, idols or false gods that Israel had to deal with in the land of Canaan. That would be Baal, Asherah, and Moloch. So we're we're on the topic of Asherah. Last week we got a little bit more than halfway done. Uh, so I want to finish up this week with the topic of Asherah. And again, this reminder that the reason we're doing this is to look at the influence of the demonic, the ancient world, and how, how the demons uh, sit behind the idols. Uh, and the Bible is very, very clear that the worship of idols is the worship of demons. And these idols, or false gods, have existed since humans have fallen into sin. And we've created false gods for ourselves. Um, gods of nature, like the storms or trees or something like that. Gods of inner consciousness, so gods that represent our inner being, who our identity is. And then gods of events or actions, like marriage or harvest or planting or building a house or going to war, all these actions that people do. There are gods for those things also. So where we left off last time, we looked at the ancient goddess of Asherah, who's also known as Ishtar, Inanna, Aphrodite, Venus. It's just Different cultures have different words or names for the same general theme of what is behind this goddess, the ideas, the beliefs, the practices. I mentioned that Inanna or Asherah is androgynous. She is both male and female. She typically presents as female, but she can turn men into women and women into men. That is a demonstration of her power in the mythology she is rescued by androgynous creatures, and they uh, bring her back from the dead into life. We also mentioned in the ancient Near East, ancient Israel, that there are different classes of worshippers, both male and female, uh, most of whom were castrated men who dressed as women. And again, just another reminder that we are going to be covering some mature content today, so if you have young ears, please keep that in mind as you listen. Uh, anyways, so we have multiple different uh, priests uh, and priestesses. Um, you had eunuch males dressed as warrior women, or you had women that would take on a warrior-like appearance, uh, picking up weapons, carrying them around. Uh, you had men who would have sex with other men, but they would be dressed as women. They were known as the Gali by the Romans, but they're known in the Old Testament uh, language as the Asinu, uh, which means dog and woman, or female dog. That is the literal meaning of the word. Now we left off with the topic of the different priests and priestesses of Asherah worship, but there was more to it than just setting up Asherah poles or totem poles, and having ceremonies at these poles. The worshippers of Asherah, the Gali, they would also engage in public 
parades, marches, or displays that uh, revealed a lot of what they did and what they believed. So I want to read to you an account, several different accounts actually, of what the Gali did. And uh, these are accounts given by ancient historians. I'm going to read one from the Greek historian Lucian, which is written in 150 AD. But first, I'm going to read a quote from the scholar J. Townsley on his, uh, from his work, Goddess, Religions, and Queer Sex. So here is what he says, quote, The Gali would wander in the streets in full cross-dress regalia, amulets, flowing robes, makeup, depilated bodies, and long hair dyed blonde. They would dance in a frenzy with tambourines and flutes, often with knives or swords, with which they would cut their arms, shedding blood to help them tell the fortunes of the people who would give them money. End quote. So that's just a, a short citation, um, but there seems to be an overlap of the worship of Asherah with the worship of Baal, because Baal worship involved the cutting of arms and the ability to tell fortunes through the shedding of blood. But now I want to read a more detailed description of what happens during these parades in the ancient Roman world. So again, this is from the Greek historian Lucian, around 150 AD. Here's what he says, quote, As the Gauli sing and celebrate their orgies, frenzy falls on many of them, and many who had come as mere spectators afterwards are found to have committed the great act. I will narrate what they do. Any young man who has resolved on this action strips off his clothes and, with a loud shout, bursts into the middle of the crowd and picks up a sword from a number of swords, which I suppose have been kept ready for many years for this purpose. He takes it and castrates himself, and then runs wild through the city, bearing in his hands what he has cut off. He casts it into any house at will, and from this house he receives women's raiment and ornaments. Thus they act during their ceremonies of castration. End quote. So, overall, what we have here is a very in-depth uh, religious practice. We have people who would become priests and priestesses, uh, female and male prostitutes, the males usually uh, castrating themselves and dressing as women, and sometimes the women would dress as men and have weapons. Uh, people would go to these places and engage in sexual behavior. Um, the uh, women of the land were expected at least once in their life, to sell themselves as a prostitute, to honor Inanna or Asherah, and to give the money to the temple of Asherah. Then you had orgies and parades, so very, very public, uh, community-wide uh, events, which involved mutilation, uh, cross-dressing, uh, castration, and sexual perversion, and inappropriate sexual behavior. Now, in all these acts, right, all these behaviors, there had to be children that were conceived from this, right? I mean, the ancient world did have some uh, drugs that would cause abortions, but not many. They would have surgical instruments that cause abortions. The Romans definitely did, but that was very risky. So a lot of times the children were born, uh, but they were either abandoned 
or killed or raised as prostitutes themselves. Now, here's the interesting thing, is that children of these religious sexual rituals were often considered children of the gods because they had no father. They were the fatherless. So there is some kind of divine favor upon them, as they would see it. But the result of these children was that they were either given to Moloch because they had divine favor, because they were kind of an innocent or perfect sacrifice, they were often given to Moloch in uh, burnt offerings. But uh, some of them would also be raised among the prostitutes because they didn't have fathers, and it was the female prostitutes who raised these children, so they would um, become part of the religious practices. So these children would grow up, and they would become prostitutes, male or female, uh, if they survived. So that is what we see happen to the children of these uh, of these uh, ritualistic sex practices, uh, known as the fatherless. Now, what is God's response to all of this behavior that we see? Well, it's pretty strong, his response. So we see, first of all, in the law of God, there are to be no idols or graven images. Okay. There is to be no worship of the sun, moon, and stars. That includes Venus. And, by the way, the worship of Aphrodite or Inanna, uh, she was associated with the moon and Venus. There was to be no sexual behavior outside of marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman was to be the norm and the ideal in which sexual behavior occurred. Furthermore, there was to be no associating sex with the worship of God. So Deuteronomy 23 talks about the wages of a prostitute and the wages of a dog, the male prostitute, cannot be used for the temple. So contrary to what the worship of Anana required, God says no. You will not associate prostitution with the worship of God. Even among married couples, sex made someone ceremonially unclean. Not morally or ethically unclean. Uncleanness in the Old Testament was more than just a moral thing. There were some things that were morally unclean, but ritually unclean meant that you could not go into worship. You could not gather corporately with God's people and go into the temple to worship the Lord until you were clean. You had to be made clean. Now, in Leviticus 15, the law that says if a man lies with a woman, they are both unclean, even if they're married. They're unclean until evening. They have to wash themselves. So essentially what God is doing here is putting a barrier, uh, setting up distance between sex and worship of God. Uh, they're not to be paired together. Uh, to do so is to be unclean. Now there's other laws. Deuteronomy 23, 17 prohibits prostitution in the land. You shall not give any of your sons or daughters as prostitutes. But then we also have Deuteronomy 22.5, which talks about how women are not to wear men's clothing, and men are not to wear women's clothing. It's an abomination. And that's not just about, uh, you know, whether it's pants or dresses, you know, today. There's more to it than that. Because that was a common thing among these pagan practices. And so the men were not to wear a woman's cloak 
and basically adopt the identity of a woman. And the woman was not to wear a man's gear. And the word for the man's clothing is the same word used to describe a warrior's garment or warrior's gear. So the woman was not to don warrior gear. Okay, again, seems very much um, responding to the practice of having women become masculinized and carrying weapons as part of worship. Uh, there was also to be no eunuchs in the assembly. Deuteronomy 23.1, uh, any, any man whose testicles are, are crushed or whose parts are castrated is not to be involved in the corporate worship of God. And this is not because God is picking on the eunuchs, um, but the point is, is that the ancient pagan world was associating being a eunuch with worshiping uh, Baal or Asherah. And so they, you know, all these people were purposely doing that, making themselves eunuchs. And God says, no, that's not to be associated at all with my worship. We also have a, uh, another kind of strange law. It doesn't seem like it fits anywhere, but it's Exodus 23, 19. And it's the second part of that, that law. But the law basically says you're not to boil or cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. Okay, now, does, the, does God have an issue with eating baby goats? No. No, not at all. Nothing is wrong with eating a baby animal. A veal, a young calf, is a baby calf, right? Does God have a problem with boiling things in milk? No, 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 no problem with that either. Yogurt, cheese, or boiled milk. What's the issue, though? The issue is that you are using the mother's milk, an instrument that is supposed to bring nourishment and life, and you're using it in kind of a weird, twisted way to kill that baby or to kill that object. So taking something that is life-giving and designed to give life and using it to instead bring death upon that thing. Uh, and this might be a reference to uh, Inanna and Asherah because in the mythologies, the non-gendered beings bring the food and milk of life in order to revive Inanna. But then Inanna also has the food and milk of death that she gives to uh, those under her judgment or those who are her enemies as kind of a, a test or a form of judgment. So there's the food and milk of life and the food and milk of death, and that might uh, be the connection to this uh, issue of boiling baby goats in its mother's milk. So besides being prohibited from certain practices, Israel was also commanded to care for the widows, the orphans, and the fatherless. So, and the fatherless is not just those kids whose parents died or whose fathers died for some reason. No, the fatherless were also those who were intentionally made fatherless by these different sexual cultic practices um, and these children would often either become prostitutes themselves or be sacrificed to Moloch because they were considered a divine or a good sacrifice. Now in the New Testament, so that's the Old Testament, in the New Testament we don't have much of a reference to Asherah, not really at all. We have a reference to Artemis and she is a Greek version of Asherah. In Acts 19, 
we have Artemis of the Ephesians because Paul is in Ephesus and the business of selling silver statues has been impacted by the gospel. And so Demetrius, the silversmith, is not happy about this and stirs up the people to riot against Paul and the other Christians. And the people chant, you know, great is Artemis of the Ephesians for several hours. And again, Artemis was uh, the version, their version of Asherah. And interestingly, I looked it up and the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was run by castrated male priests. Okay, they, those were the, the leaders or the heads of that temple. Again, not a surprise considering uh, what that worship entailed. You also have a reference to Jezebel in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2, verse 19 through 21 says this. This is to one of the seven churches. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. So Jezebel being a worshiper not only of Baal, but also of Asherah. Now what are the principal themes of Asherah? Well, when we, when we put it all together, it seems like, well, one of her powers is to overcome boundaries and barriers, to tear down barriers and to blur distinctions. Barriers such as gender roles or physical anatomy, um, God's design for men and women. Asherah oh, transgresses the boundaries. She blurs them. But in fact, this is a common pagan belief. Um, and I wanna, I'm going to read several different quotes from the work titled Androgyny, the Pagan Sexual Ideal. And it was written by Peter Jones, who is professor of New Testament, or was professor of New Testament at Westminster Theological Seminary. Now, he wrote this, this article uh, in 2000, so 23 years ago. He wrote this, talking about androgyny, talking about sexuality and, and paganism, right? And he says, in one section, he says, boundaries are illusions, products not of reality, but of the way we map and edit reality. Okay, so that's a, a common way of thinking from the pagan view, is that they're trying uh, to reinterpret boundaries, okay? And so essentially, it involves dividing what God has joined together and joining what God has divided, right? So God has, God's the one who determines what is to be joined and what is to be divided. And Satan's realm, and that includes the demonic beliefs of Asherah, is to overturn that, to divide what God has joined and to join what God has divided. You also see uh, in Asherah thinking or Asherahism, unrestrained passion and violence, the fulfillment of lust and desires. And this is not just private, it's public also. It's to be celebrated and collective. And it's associated also with great anger, wrath, and vengeance because those who follow these beliefs of Asherah. They want to do anything sexual. They want to do what they want, whenever they want it, however they wish to do it, and with whomever 
they want to do it at any given time. Um, and there is to be no restraint placed upon them. And to restrain them is to incur their wrath okay, and anger. And so there's a lot of vengeance and anger associated with this unrestrained passion that this thinking leads to. Now, that unrestrained passion usually involves joining together what God has said, no, you are not to join together. And those who engage in these practices are waging war against the image of God inside of them. They hate God, just like the devil hates God, right? Waging war against him. And so they wage war against God. But since they're made in God's image, they're actually destroying themselves. They're waging war against themselves. And we see this belief system not just in the ancient world. It carries on through many different pagan practices. Uh, again, uh, Peter Jones says this. He says, the heart of paganism is a mystical, unitive experience, a state in which distinctions disappear and opposites are joined. Okay, so again, no more distinctions, and we're going to bring opposites together. And in fact, the ancient Gnostics, and, and the Gnostics are just um, another cult, but they grew up around the same time of Christianity, and there was an attempt for, from the Gnostics to try to co-opt Christianity or to corrupt it. And in fact, you see this in one of the quote-unquote Gnostic Gospels, Gospel of Thomas, not really written by Thomas, but the Gnostics um, claimed it as the Gospel of Thomas. And one saying of the Gospel of Thomas says this, says, quote, and when you make the male and the female into a single one, so that the male shall not be male and the female shall not be female, then you shall enter the kingdom. So again, we have this androgyny, this paganism creeping into uh, the Gospel of Thomas and attempting to trick and deceive the Christians. So, so we have those two big uh, concepts of unrestrained passion and the desire to blur distinctions and overturn boundaries. Now, what are some modern examples of this way of thinking? Well, it should be fairly obvious. One of them is radical feminism and egalitarianism. Now, now this one, and I say this first because it does come first before the LGBTQ movement. That'll be the other one that I mention. But radical feminism and egalitarianism came first. And the goal in that was to make everything equal. Everything's the same. All is one. All is the same. There is no difference between men and women. And that is a, a pagan ideal of androgyny. There is no difference between men and women. They're all the same. And the goal in egalitarianism, the extreme version of it, was to emasculate men and to empower women. And it was a, uh, a flipping of power and also a view that men had power and were the oppressor and women were the oppressed. So you have a, a touch of Baalism or Baal thinking, the zero-sum game of power that was associated with Baal. And this flipped gender roles. Now you have women bearing swords in combat. And this is symbolized all throughout uh, mythologies with like the Amazonians or the Valkyries, uh, beautiful women who... Uh, were very lethal and very deadly, and were warriors, right? And so the women become masculine, and the men become feminine. But what's interesting is that, and this touches into the uh, the LGBTQ movement, is that when you flip or do the role reversals, you don't get a biblical version of, of either of them. The, the men that become women 
or who dress as women, they are not a, a, a godly version of women. It's a caricature of femininity. This considered drag queens. I mean, a drag queen is a man who dresses up as a woman overly sexualized and very much a caricature of women. He's not dressed as a normal woman or as the average woman. He's a caricature of what a woman is, a very twisted version of a woman. So when you flip them, you don't get uh, a biblical versions of either of them. And so with extreme egalitarianism and radical feminism, you also have the separation of marriage and children and sex. So you want to have, you know, people want to have sex without marriage and without, ch without children. So you have no-fault divorce, abortion on demand, and things like that. So we'll talk more about abortion when we talk about Moloch. And so again, I uh, want to move on to the LGBTQ plus movement, a very obvious, a clear connection to the worship of, of Asherah. Again, it's about unrestrained sexual pleasure outside of marriage. It's to be publicly displayed and celebrated. I mentioned before that in the ancient world, the month of Tammuz was the most holiest month for the worship of Asherah and the mourning for Tammuz, uh, a period of heightened deviant sex outside of marriage. Uh, and that's the month of June. The month of Tammuz is the month of June. And so now we have the rainbow flags and pride and anger and lust, um, and it's to be publicly celebrated. Of course, you have transgenderism, which is boys emasculating themselves and girls having surgery. So it's boys becoming like girls and girls becoming like boys. Uh, and they declare and choose their identity. And again, Anana's power is to change a man into a woman and a woman into a man. That's a demonstration of her power. And it's to be awe-inspiring into the people. So we have this kind of practice. And ultimately, ultimately, it is the result of idolatry. And it is demonic. And it will end... First of all, it's associated with a lot of other sinful practices. Idolatry leads to more. It bears more fruit, wicked fruit, right? But it also requires public uh, demand, public acknowledgement. And I want to read to you just uh, the very end of Romans chapter 1 because I think it's very fitting to what we see today. Romans 1, verse 26 through 32. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So Paul says that the, one of the end results of idolatry is a lot of wickedness, more fruit, but it's not private. It can't stay private. It must become public, and it must become celebrated and acknowledged by everybody. 
publicly applauded. And those who don't applaud are going to be judged and viewed as the enemy. And I think we're clearly seeing that today. So that is a quick summary, rundown, and application of the worship of Asherah. And so what I want to do next time uh, is look at the worship of Moloch. Because again, Moloch and Asherah and Baal are tied together. They're related. There's a common mythology to them. And they were the big three that Israel had to deal with in the land of Canaan. So if you have any questions or comments or other topics related to this that you'd like me to address, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can go on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, look for Governed by God or the GBG podcast and message me there. Again, I hope that this was useful to you. Please uh, think on these things, consider these things, and as Christians, how we are to respond to these things that are going on in our world today. Thank you for tuning in, and until next time, take care. And God.